I don't know what you uh, people grew up reading, but when I was young, what I was into, and, and I have to say I'm still into, is detective stories. Um, I started out with Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah, someone else did too. <laughs> uh, and then moved fairly quickly onto the Agatha Christie uh, murder mysteries, around about the time I turned 11 or 12. In fact, I used to hunt around like school fates, scout fates, church fates, rummaging through the um, second-hand books to try to find Agatha Christie novels that I hadn't read, always checking the last 15 pages to make sure they were there because otherwise, waste of money. Yeah, but whodunit stories, that, that's what I was into. Those books where you start with a, a crime, usually a death, then the clues are laid out for you and you're trying to work out by the time you get to the end who committed the crime. Well, I want to say today that these last few chapters of Mark's Gospel are kind of like a whodunit story but with a very significant twist. The twist is, is this. From halfway through Mark's Gospel, so we've been going through Mark over four weeks, from halfway through... We've known that this story is going to end with the death, with the murder, with the death of Jesus. Jesus has been telling his disciples again and again that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests, that the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and three days rise again. So the twist in this detective story is kind of that the murder comes not at the beginning like it traditionally does, but it's actually at the end. Uh, the twist in this detective story is that we actually get to see, we're told in advance who's going to pull the trigger, so the mystery has got to be something else. The real twist in this detective story is that the clues are more to do with whose death are we watching when we see Jesus killed on that hill they call the skull. Whose death is it? That's probably not the thing you think of immediately when you're reading Mark's Gospel, but like any detective story, there are clues all along the way that as you read it and you kind of piece things together, you, you're led to ask, yeah, what is going on in Jesus' death? Whose death is this? So as we wrap up this little mini-series on Mark in four parts... I want to look at four clues with you tonight, okay? Four clues. First one is a ransom note. The second one is some blood. Um, the third clue is a cup. And the fourth clue is a swap that happens. So a ransom note, blood, cup, swap. We're going to stick these clues under the magnifying glass so that by the time we're finished, I hope you will be able to answer pretty clearly for yourself whose death it is. So let's go, clue number one. Um, you'll need your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32, so that's page 1002 in the red Bibles there. Uh, this is actually where we were last week. This week we're going chapters 14 onwards, but we, we need to start in Mark chapter 10. Um, Mark 10:32. this is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and, and he's saying he's on his way there, because he's got an appointment with betrayal and death. Verses 33-34, he's telling us exactly who's going to be killed. No Poirot involved here. He's telling us exactly who's going to pull the trigger. 
Um, if you were here last week, you might remember when Taong was preaching, he pointed out how when this happens in Mark 8, 9 and 10, you, you have Jesus describing the suffering that he's going to go through, then there's confusion and misunderstanding among disciples. Jesus corrects them and then he teaches them uh, and he teaches them in the form of a paradox. So let's have a look at the paradox here. Verse 43. He says, look guys, if you want to be great, you need to become the servant. You've got to be the slave of everyone else if you want to be elevated to number one. And then he says this, here's where our clue comes. For even the Son of Man, this is verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is teaching us something about what is going to happen when he dies, what, what his death is going to be all about. So if our, our mystery is whose death is this, here's our first clue. When he dies, Jesus says his life will be like he's paying it as a ransom. So he's saying there are people, many, he says, it's like they've been kidnapped, they're hostages, and unless someone pays the ransom price to set them free, those people are going to die. Jesus says when he dies, that will be his act of paying the ransom to set those people free. In a sense, his death is going to be their death. That's clue number one. Clue number two, we're now in verse, uh, chapter 14, 15, 16. So go to chapter 14 uh, to the Last Supper. Uh, by this stage of the story of Mark's Gospel, they're in Jerusalem. It's Thursday night. Uh, Jesus and his friends arrived on Sunday. Since Sunday, they've been in town. And on the Thursday night, they're celebrating the Passover meal together. Judas is just about to go and betray Jesus. And while they're eating, Jesus gives another clue about what his death will be all about. So from verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And their mouths drop open like oven doors. What's he talking about? He goes on, then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant. Remember the second clue? Which is poured out for many, he said to them. It's very much like the first clue. Here he's saying his blood is going to be poured out for other people. His death is not actually about him. Jesus is telling his disciples in advance when he dies, he's dying as a substitute, like the ultimate Passover lamb. Look back at verse 12. This is the time when the Passover lambs are being sacrificed and Jesus is, is saying, I am going to be the ultimate Passover lamb who dies in order to set others free. My blood will be the guarantee that you will be spared. Mark's not done with the clues though. There's an even more important one to come in chapter 14. After the supper, Jesus and his disciples go to a garden and he takes Peter and James and John to find a nice quiet spot where he can pray. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 33. 
Mark is describing what's happening there in the garden. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, Jesus said to them. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you, so take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but what you will. Do you remember what the third clue was going to be? The cup. The cup. Now, if you're a detective looking at this, your powers of observation are fantastic, right? And you would have observed something strange has just happened in Mark's Gospel. Up until now, Jesus has been extremely confident and powerful everywhere he goes. All the way through Mark's Gospel, Jesus is presented as this man of action going from one thing to the next thing. Um, This breathtaking naturalness in the way in which he just assumes absolute authority in every situation, everywhere that he goes. But that's not the Jesus we see now in the garden, is it? Now, all of a sudden, he's saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Something deeply significant is happening here. And you know what, I, I think it's, it's more than Jesus realising that he's only hours away from his death. I mean, you think about other people who've faced death. Think of Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran, the two guys who were executed in Indonesia earlier this year. When they were just hours from their death, what did they do? They kind of did what we're doing now. They, they held a little church service. They sang praise songs to God, some of the songs that we sing here in this church. And they, they looked their oncoming death in the eye and they faced it with courage and, and confidence and hope. Or else you can go back in history to 1555, Oxford University, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley being burnt at the stake for their faith. And with the fire licking at their feet, Latimer said, Be of good courage, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. And we could tell you story after story of followers of Jesus who've known that they're about to die, who have faced death with real courage and certainty and confidence. They, in fact, they seem to have been facing their approaching death better than Jesus is facing it here in the garden. Now, why is that? What, what is going on with Jesus as he prays in the garden? The clue, remember, is the cup. We need to realise that throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the cup is a metaphor, a constant symbol of God's wrath and anger and judgement against human sin and evil. Now, all of his life, whenever he prayed, uh, Jesus prayed with the deepest intimacy between himself and God. Remember, at his baptism and then in chapter 9, the the, uh, transfiguration, this voice comes from heaven that people can hear. This is my son whom I love. I'm pleased with him. 
what other people heard on those two occasions, Jesus heard in his mind, in his soul, constantly in his prayers. But here in the garden, he's praying and it's different. He turns to the Father and all he can see in front of him is the wrath, the judgment and the terror of the cup. All he can see is the horror of having that immense approval and intimacy and love that he's known from all of eternity stripped away from him. That he would have to drink the cup of God's wrath and anger. And so he cries out to God, Father, if, please, if there's any other way, if it's possible to do this without having to face drinking the cup of your wrath, Jesus in the garden stared into the dark abyss of the cup and it shook him. It shook him. Now why is that? Why would this man of authority and confidence be shaken? Well, to find the answer to that, let's look briefly at the fourth clue in chapter 15. At this point, beginning of chapter 15, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, arrested, taken to the Jewish authorities who have falsely accused him and then found him guilty. And they now have taken him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Mark tells us in verse 6 that there was a custom at the Passover time where the Roman governor would release one of the prisoners to the people. Pilate, who can see that Jesus hasn't done anything anything wrong, um, that he hasn't done anything at all to deserve death, offers to the people that he will set Jesus free in accordance with this custom. Here's his opportunity. But the crowd don't want to have anything to do with that. They start cheering and yelling. They want Barabbas released. Barabbas, who if you look at verse 7, Mark tells us has committed murder. I mean, Barabbas is guilty. He's as guilty as they come. And the crowd is cheering for Barabbas to be released and the crowd get their way. Barabbas is set free. Jesus is taken to be crucified. So the innocent one, Jesus, dies in the place of the guilty one, Barabbas. The cross that had been prepared for Barabbas to die on, Jesus is nailed to. It's a swap, isn't it? Those two men have swapped places and that swap is the clue that explains a little more what's going on with the cup, that explains what's going on at the cross. It's something that all the New Testament authors agree on, that when Jesus died, in a very, very real sense, it wasn't his death that was happening. It was mine. It was yours. See, there was no reason at all for Jesus to die. There was no reason he had not done anything wrong. There was no reason for him to drink the cup of God's judgment and wrath. No reason other than for him to die in our place. So that through our faith in him we might never have to drink that cup ourselves. 
Let me explain what's going on a, a little bit differently. Um, I want you to imagine that this book represents the record of your life or, or my life. Um, it's from the day we're born until the day we die. In this book is where every sin, everything wrong, every evil thought, everything is recorded in here. It's written into this book. So every occasion we've rebelled against God's laws or his right to have complete authority in our lives, um, every wrong deed, every attitude of, of, or thought that kind of tried to diminish God's greatness down and made out that we ought to be able to decide for ourselves in this life, that's what this book represents. In my book there are plenty of pages that I don't think I would ever want anyone else to see. And I bet that's true in your life too. Now, suppose this hand, this palm, represents you and the ceiling up there represents God. Now, the Bible says that between us and God is the record of our sins. So our sins separate us from God. The Bible says God's so pure that even if only just one tiny little line, one little reference on one page was all there was, that would still be enough to separate us from God. But it's worse than that. See, not only are we cut off from God, the Bible says, yes, God is a God of love, but God is also the just judge and he must punish all sin. Sin can't be left as it is. Um, Habakkuk 1 verse 13, God's described as being, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. So God has to, as the judge, punish all evil that includes our evil. Our problem is we've got this record of wrong on us and so the judgment is going to come upon us. Now, let me tell you what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Suppose this hand is Jesus. Now, there's no book between Jesus and God because Jesus never sinned. Jesus always perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father, perfectly loved God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. He loved other people perfectly all the time. The Bible says he was tempted just like we are, but never sinned. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, God took the sins of people throughout human history and he placed them on Jesus. So the Bible says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You could say that on the cross, Jesus became the most sinful person the world has ever seen as the sins of millions and millions of believers across the ages were poured out into his body and then while he was on the cross, God poured out on Jesus all of his wrath and judgment and anger against all of that sin and all of the punishment against that sin that ought to fall on you and me. And Jesus took the punishment for us. He took the punishment and he took away from us the penalty for sin. And the result is, well, what now stands between me and God? Nothing. Now that Jesus has taken the punishment that God deserves, there's nothing that stands between me and God. 
Now, that's one way of illustrating what Mark says in chapter 15 happens as soon as Jesus dies. You have a look in your Bible. As soon, he says, as a result of what Jesus did on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Now, you've got to understand, the curtain in the temple was put there to prevent people from going into the, the most holy place in the centre of the, the sanctuary, in the centre of the temple. The place where God and man could meet face to face. This representative sanctuary where God dwelt on earth, in a sense. But the curtain was there to keep people out, to make sure no one could go in. Now, you read what it says, verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There's this immediate kind of progress that Mark wants us to see. Jesus died, and the curtain was gone. Jesus died, and access to God was opened up for people. His death had taken away that barrier between God and man. Uh, to think of the books, the books had been transferred, so there was no longer anything standing between me and God. What that means is because of what Jesus did on the cross, direct fellowship with God has become possible for people, all kinds of people. And Mark makes that point very clear with the next thing that happens as you read that, that sequence from verse 37. The very next verse, verse 39. Uh, the curtain in the temple is torn in two and it says the centurion, the Roman Gentile soldier who probably worshipped other gods, who served in an army who said that, that, that Caesar was, that Roman emperor was the son of, of the divine Augustus. He was the son of a god. This Roman Gentile pagan soldier stood there watching Jesus die. Jesus died. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And what happened next? He walked straight through that curtain into a relationship with God. He confessed his faith that no, it's not the emperor who's the son of God. Surely this man was the Son of God. And so here's my question for you tonight. Are you like the centurion? Have you seen what Jesus has done for you? How he's died your death in your place? And have you turned to him to grab hold of him and put all of your hope in him? Or... The alternative is, are you someone who's kind of hanging on to your own book, trying your best to erase things out of that book and clean yourself up? Because let me tell you, you need to know that is never going to work. And more than that, why would you try to do that anyway? Like seriously, Look, look at Jesus. Look at what Mark is showing us about Jesus. His death for you. He died to take away the things that separate you from God and God's pleasure, God embracing you as his child. Jesus died to take that away. Why on earth would you try to hang on to them? So turn to Jesus and cling to him instead of your own book. Know that for sure, 
because of what he's done, that curtain between you and God has been taken away. You can have this relationship with God now. How do we know that's right? Well, Mark, Mark shows us the evidence in the last chapter, chapter 16, where we see very briefly, but enough to know that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And in a sense, the resurrection acts as God's great big stamp of approval on what Jesus has done on our behalf. After draining the cup of God's wrath for our sakes, God then raised Jesus from death. And his resurrection is kind of like a receipt given to you from God, something that you can point to that says, the the ruler of the universe has said, this has been paid in full, there's nothing left for me to do. I, I know that's true because he raised Jesus from death. So I want to urge you, if you haven't done it before, please don't wait any longer. Go to Jesus tonight. Turn to him. Grab hold of him. Stop trying to sort it out by yourself. One last thing I want to mention as we wrap up. And this is, this is kind of serious. Um, I love our church. I think our church is great. We're a great bunch of God's people working hard together. But I also think that within this church we have become fairly kind of lukewarm when it comes to sharing our faith with other people, when it comes to talking with others about Jesus. As I kind of look around the congregation, there are some people, but I don't think there are very many of us who are just driven to talk with others about how God has saved us and what he's done for them. There aren't very many people who are desperately praying to God that he would soften people's hearts and pour out his grace into their lives. And as I've been preparing this sermon, I've been wondering whether the reason for that is because we, as pretty comfortable Western people, have decided we don't really need to look at the cup. We've forgotten about the cup of God's wrath. It's not nice to think about judgment and God's fury against sin. In fact, God's wrath against ordinary people who we know who have rejected God's rule and who are trying to save themselves by all kinds of means. Because we've stopped thinking about the cup, we don't see the need, we don't see the desperation. And so if you think maybe that's true of you, I want to encourage you this week to just take some time in Mark 14 and 15 just to go into the garden with Jesus and look into the cup. Look into that abyss and see the judgment of God. And having looked then, pray. Get on your knees if you have to, but pray that God would use you to intervene in people's lives. Pray that he would give you courage to speak about Jesus with people. In fact, in anticipation that he's going to move you to do that, as you leave today, why don't you take a a bunch of invitation cards to the Mark drama and then bring someone, bring, bring a carload of people here on Saturday evening or Sunday evening. Why don't you take some invitation cards about Christianity Explored 
and deliberately carve out some time in your schedule to say to a, a colleague, someone who you study with, a friend, hey, look, you can tell me you think it's all rubbish at the end, but please just come with me for seven weeks to this course called Christianity Explored. I'll go with you and, and together let's find out about what the Christian faith really is about and then talk with me afterwards. It's things like that which God uses to rescue people by his grace. It's things like that that God uses to save people out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his light. We want to give you opportunities to grab hold of things like that. So please, grab hold of them. You know, our job, this is the good news about evangelism, your job is not to convert people. That's God's job. That's God's work. He's the one who will do that. But our job very definitely is to tell people, to invite people, and very, very certainly to pray for people. So let's do that now. I want to lead us in prayer for some of those friends and colleagues of ours. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Thank you that uh, when Jesus was in the garden and he stared into the the cup and saw your wrath and he, he trembled and stumbled, he didn't stop moving forward. He still went to the cross to bring glory to you and for love for us. We thank you that he did that. We thank you that he has taken away the guilt and the shame and the judgment that was hanging over us. Father, we praise you too for the people in our lives who first spoke to us about Jesus, who invited us along to youth group or who, who told us to come to a Bible study with them or, or opened up the Bible themselves with us. Thank you for those people, Lord God. Thank you that you used them in our lives. And so right now we want to pray for some of those people who we know, family members, friends who we study with, people who we work with. We name them before you, Lord God, and ask you to shower them with your grace and to use us, Lord. Give us the courage we need to invite them, to speak with them, help us to keep praying for them, trusting you, that you will do your work in their lives. And we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.